A huge number of people listened to this podcast yesterday, the day after the election, wanting to hear a discussion about the big moments in Ohio history and how people voted on issue one and issue two. And we're still talking about it today because we've had time to analyze. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I'm here with Layla Tassi, Laura Johnston, and Lisa Garvin, and I hope another big day for the audience. Okay, so Layla, we've had a day to crunch the numbers. What do the county-by-county numbers show about how Ohio voted for the amendment to enshrine abortion in our Constitution? Well, what we know is that the largest counties in the state carried this thing to victory, and Cuyahoga County led that pack. Issue 1 passed here with the widest margin of all Ohio counties. While Issue 1 received 56.6 of the vote statewide, it won in Cuyahoga County with 74% of the vote, and that's followed by Franklin County, which includes Columbus. They, They passed it with 73%. This was followed then by Athens County, which uh, 72% voted for it, and Summit and Hamilton counties, each with 65%. Athens County, of course, is is a smaller county, but it's home to Ohio University with thousands of young voters. The least support came from Putnam, Mercer, Shelby, and Holmes counties, each of those fewer than 25% of voters uh, supported Issue 1. Without the four largest counties in the state, Issue one would have failed with 49.8% of the vote. So it, it lost in more counties than it passed in. But the combined 520,518 votes in Cuyahoga, Franklin, Hamilton, and Summit counties really made all the difference. Majority rule. This is an interesting moment because we've talked for years now about how the cities have overlords in the legislature, that the legislature is gerrymandered way beyond the proportions of the way the state is. And so the people in the legislature do things that just crush cities. But when there's a vote and people turn out, the cities exert their power. We said way back in July, what would happen if Cuyahoga County decided they're not going to take issue one sitting down and they came out in force all in Northeast Ohio? And they did and issue one got crushed largely because of that. And you've seen it again here. The question I have is, can a candidate for statewide office looking at this, seeing the divergent opinions in cities and rural areas, come up with a way to appeal to both? That is, that's the, the, the question here. I'm, I feel like I'm waiting for the, uh, the other shoe to drop with, <laughs> with the Republican lawmakers uh, worried about how this, this is going to play out in the future for those other statewide races next year. I, I'm thinking they're going to come up with some like statewide electoral college system <laughs> to give rural voters an outsized uh, uh, say in, in elections. From well, they on. have it in the legislature. That's what they did. That's what Jerry exactly. did. But I did receive a really interesting note from a reader yesterday. He said, look, I live in the rural area and I heard what you said on the podcast and this will not change how I vote for people. I worry that if I vote for Democrats, people in the cities will overlord me, and I don't agree with a lot of things that are going on in the cities, so I'm going to vote against that. I'm going to vote for candidates who are Republican, but on the issues, 
I'm voting my conscience. And in each of these issues, I voted yes, because I believe in abortion rights. I believe in legalizing. I don't quite understand that that argument, because how 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 would it be that under what circumstances could could the cities overlord the rural areas? I'm trying to think of a scenario where that would come to play. Well, think about guns. The cities want the ability to rein in the proliferation of guns. And in many rural areas, people think differently. In a lot of cases, though, they want they want home rule authority to to rein in guns. Yeah, but they're but they're worried that that's the beginning. When I was out at Baldwin Wallace University last year talking to those students, there were some from rural areas and they said, look, I can see the difference in, in where I'm from. Guns are a tool of life. We use them for all sorts of things. In the cities, it's a very different use, but we don't want to change the laws to accommodate the cities that'll cripple but, our way but of life. Is there is there no understanding of the problems that people in cities are facing? I mean, I, I have so little sympathy for that because you know, for the rural argument, because look at the problems that are are proliferating in in, in cities like Cleveland because of of uh, guns in every hand. I mean, I, I, they don't care. So, so here, that's my question. Can a candidate rise that, that takes the fears people have in the rural areas, takes the fears people have in the urban areas and manages to bring them together with normal centrist discussion and said, you know, we're all kind of on the same page here. Look, three times, we kind of have been, although, uh, you know, like you said, what was it? 48 of the counties voted against it, but 20 counties voted for it. Um, and on marijuana, well, we'll get to that in a minute. The, the numbers are not ridiculous, except in the in the three or four counties where the percentage was small. I don't know. I, it seems like th- this offers some ideas for a path forward. Hmm. But who's that candidate? Because they don't. I mean, the three guys running as Republicans for the Senate could not be more more cartoonish in their right wing nonsense. I mean, they're just completely fringe. It's all about immigration and and uh, an abortion ban. And I mean, those guys, Bernie Moreno, Matt Dolan, and uh, Frank LaRose, they are. They're buffoons the way they campaign. That's not going to appeal to the people in the cities. And Sherrod Brown is pretty far left, but he's had bona fides. He's won three times statewide. Can he mesh that together? <laughs> You don't see it, huh? I mean, Sherrod Brown, I think, has has long been considered more of a unifying candidate. I think that's why he's had such a long career, um, and and especially he, you know, fights for the working class. I mean, he's got he he has that cachet in 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 different, uh, you know, er, the, the population has has embraced him for that. But I don't know on issues like guns. Guns is is almost as divisive as abortion when it comes to ideology. And and I don't know if, if anyone can bridge the divide there. How can you how can you claim to be working on behalf of both rural and urban voters when when you're trying to I don't know. Maybe you have different laws based on the density of population or something. Look, Sherrod got a big gift Tuesday. Clearly the state wants abortion rights, and clearly the three guys running to oppose him would go into the Senate and vote for a nationwide ban. Right. If Sherrod Brown manages to effectively message that the 57% of the population right. that voted for issue one will line up behind him because those three guys want to undo their vote. They're in a tough spot now because the people have spoken. You are listening to Today in Ohio. 
One of the things we looked at, Layla, was how the voting pattern we just discussed compared to the vote on issue one in August. Of course, the, the, the vote was different. You wanted to vote against issue one if you were voting for it in November. How did it compare? Was it identical? Yeah, Zach Smith's analysis found that when it comes to support for issue one, the, the abortion amendment and rejection of special election issue one back in August, the voter turnout is just about the same. We, we realized that at 56.6% of the vote, the abortion amendment would have failed had voters approved that constitutional amendment in August that would have required the 60% threshold. So many voters in August saw that vote as a proxy for the reproductive rights amendment. But you know, as we'll discuss, that, that wasn't the case for everyone, everywhere in the state. Zach said there was some movement among some smaller counties, which ended up showing more support for issue one, then they showed rejection of special election issue one in August. For example, Guernsey County saw the biggest increase with eight percentage points more in November than in August. Fayette County follows with 7.8 percentage points and Coshocton, Clinton, Carroll, and Brown all had an increase of around six percentage points. So that is a strange phenomenon to me because who out there is pro-reproductive rights while also being anti-democracy? <laughs> That's I think that's so strange, but I guess there are some. And then in other counties, they saw a decrease from the number of those rejecting issue one in August and the number of those supporting abortion rights. And that seems like it makes a little more sense because the issue on the table in August really should have been a non-starter for all Ohioans who value the power of their vote, right? I mean, regardless of party. But the issue of abortion is is complicated by all kinds of moral and religious arguments that are really personal to each voter. So so I think we all expected there would be a significant number of people voting no in August to preserve democracy, but then voting this week against abortion access. I think that was probably a little predictable. But, you know, and that was actually the case in Cuyahoga County. We saw a 2.1 percentage point decrease between those two elections. Yeah, that, that was interesting as well. I think in August, many people understood the sleight of hand the legislature was playing. It was sleazy. They banned August elections, but then when it was expedient for them to slip one by everybody, they tried to do it. And Ohioans did not like that. That was not a sense of fair play. And just more evidence of how out of touch legislators and people like Frank LaRose are with the voter. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's do the same analysis for issue two. Lisa, what counties did it do best in and where did it get opposition? How comparable was it to issue one? Yeah, um, we touched on these figures a little bit yesterday in our podcast, but as far as issue two passage by county, again, Athens County, just like with issue one, the highest approval rate was there at 69%. Franklin County, the Columbus area at 68, Cuyahoga at 67%, and Hamilton County in Southwest Ohio, 66%. So the largest no votes were Putnam County, which is in Northwest Ohio, the 69% voted against issue two. In Holmes County, which is largely an Amish community, 68.5% voted no. And in Mercer County, which is Western Ohio, 65.7% voted no. Now we compared that to the legalization vote that took place in 2015 and failed. Um, it didn't pass in any county back then, um, but people were really upset with the fact that that law would have created a 10-company monopoly that was made up of wealthy donors to the cause. The biggest change in support, again, was Athens County. They went from 37.1% in 2015 to 69.4% 
you know, this week, uh, Franklin County jumped from 37.4 to 67.7%, and Cuyahoga went from about 40% to 66.7%. The smallest increases in support were in Jefferson and Harrison counties, and no counties reported reduced support from 2015 to 2023. What do you th- think the the difference is? Do you, do you chalk this up to party affiliation? I, it, it just would seem to me that this would cross geographic lines that, you know, I suspect younger people, people 45 and under voted for this in larger numbers than older people, but they're spread out in the state. I, I just, I, I understand the difference on abortion. I'm a little bit more uh, confused by the difference here. Well, I think in 2015, the opioid epidemic was just rearing its ugly head. And I think people have learned a lot more about marijuana in those times. And again, like I said, you know, the 2015 vote was pretty, you know, they had these 10 growers that said, we're going to be the only ones who can grow marijuana in this state. And I think people said, wait one, you know, they wanted to have a little bit of capitalism there. So... Yeah, I just, I don't know. Again, it it points out this divide between urban and rural. And really, Ohio leaders need to work on that. We we should be thinking more uniformly as a state. I don't think we're actually as far apart as some of those numbers show that I think most people are closer to the center. But man, that divide is, is becoming more starkly apparent with every election day. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Laura, what's next on the abortion front? What happens to the lawsuit over the heartbeat bill, which is pretty much moot now? What happens to the regulations that tie abortion clinics to hospitals? All the stuff that the legislature has thrown up over the years to try and impede the rate of abortions. What happens now? Well, there are six pending lawsuits that are currently challenging Ohio's abortion laws. And like you said, the heartbeat bill is the one that gets the most headlines, the most ire, because it's the most restrictive. But actually, the transfer agreements with hospitals is probably going to be the first that we're going to deal with. And that's because the U.S. District Court judge in Southern Ohio, his name is Michael Barrett, he instructed parties to submit briefs figuring out how this new abortion amendment affects the case. And the deadline is December 15th. This case has been going on since 2015, which obviously eight years. And that involves the written transfer agreements between abortion clinics and hospitals, because that was one way of limiting the number of places that could offer abortions was by making sure they had partnerships in case anything went wrong, that they could make sure those per- those people would get help at the hospital. The thing is, it's not like automatically these lawsuits are all moot and everything changes. The The law still has to work. You still have to go through the court. Planned Parenthood and other advocates of the amendment that helped get it passed said they're not strat- sharing legal strategy. They want all medically unnecessary restrictions to be removed, but they could either take it up to the court themselves or start acting differently and wait for someone to challenge them and let that go through the courts. Yeah, I mean, most of this stuff automatically should be moved. I mean, we we've voted. We've said this is what this is a right. And so it'll it'll be interesting. The Supreme Court is cooked, but you know, I well, we'll see if they respect the constitution. Right. And so it's not like automatically that these are all dismissed, but I'm sure there'll be filings and in the coming days. Um, There's one from 2020 that requires abortion clinics to bury or cremate fetal remains after a surgical abortion. That's going to be looked at. There's the ban against telemedicine for 
for uh, abortion that was passed in 2020. And then there's the Down syndrome abortion ban case also from 2020. So we'll be hearing a lot about these, I'm sure, in the coming weeks and months. Before we move on from election news, I do want to point out we have heard from quite a few people who are working in the different polling places. And it is sounding more and more like the poll workers did their job when they were running low on ballots. They tried to get more. It sounds like the problem is at the Board of Elections that they just did not handle that well. We can't say for sure, though, because the Board of Elections is doing a dance instead of just coming out and straight providing information. We're continuing to seek to get it. We also are seeing more and more evidence that college students just didn't get their ballots. It's more widespread than we thought. And even though you have boards of elections downplaying it, there were a whole bunch of people disenfranchised on Tuesday. We have to have answers for it. It might be that it's the Postal Service's fault. We're still hunting for those answers. we got to fix this before next year's primary, and we continue to be on the hunt. You are listening to Today in Ohio. We knew Cleveland was in the running to be a Frontier Airlines crew base, which is a big plus for air travelers here. But we did have competition. The contest is over. We won. Lisa, what does that mean? This is a really big deal. Denver-based Frontier Airlines is going to open a crew hub at Hopkins International Airport next March. It will employ 110 pilots, 250 flight attendants, and 50 aircraft maintenance crew. And these are mostly new jobs. And it will bring in an annual payroll of about $80 million. CEO Barry Biffle says they've been very successful in Cleveland. He said Cleveland has taken real liking to Frontier. And he said more jobs will be added in the future. And there will be adding new routes from Hopkins in 2024, and that will be leasing more terminal space to make room for this new crew hub. Seven planes will be based at Hopkins, and this is part of a larger strategy by Frontier to increase the number of planes that start and end the day in the same location. This increases reliability and allows them to be more flexible when there are cancellations and weather issues and so on. Frontier is the fastest growing carrier at Hopkins. Their seat capacity was up 53% in the last 12 months. Nationwide, Frontier carried 25 million passengers in 2022. So this will be one of 11 crew bases across the nation. There are others in Denver, Dallas, Atlanta, Las Vegas, Miami, Phoenix, and Orlando. So yeah, this is big news. Justin Bibb is thrilled. I wish, though, in their negotiation, they said, we'll come on one condition, that you clean your bathrooms. (laughs) (laughs) And we hear this all the time. We got a note from a local writer a couple of weeks ago saying, will you please look into this? I travel a lot. Every other bathroom in the country is clean and here they're gross. I don't know what it is about Cleveland Hopkins cannot keep its bathrooms clean. And now I'll defer to Layla who likes to go off on this topic. <laughs> I think, I mean, I'm, I'm a, admittedly a little neurotic about public bathrooms, but the, the Cleveland Hopkins bathrooms are especially disgusting. So that's all I have to say about that. Do you want me to call in tomorrow at uh, five something in the morning when I'm there for my flight? Yeah, just don't send pictures. That's too early in the morning to be looking at pictures like that. <laughs> you are listening to Today in Ohio. As the pandemic wound down, a national study came out and then kept getting updated, showing Cleveland's downtown was recovering much more slowly than just about every other city it was measuring. And every time, Cleveland leaders would say the study was bogus, that it wasn't measuring correctly. All of a sudden, that study shows Cleveland doing much better. 
Laura, what changed and what is our new ranking? So the study revised its parameters, and I guess it wasn't just sour grapes from the people in charge. They really weren't looking at all of downtown. They were just looking at a portion of it. So they were leaving out Progressive Field, the Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, all sorts of things that you would look to as part of our downtown. And this study is from the University of Toronto School of Cities and the Institute of Governmental Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. So we were once ranked 61st out of 62 cities, which was pretty pathetic. Now we're 31st out of 66 cities. And we are leading other Ohio cities, including Cincinnati and Columbus, which dropped precipitously. It And then Pittsburgh, Detroit, we're ahead of them. So that's good news for us. We're looking at visits to downtown Cleveland. They're at 78% of pre-pandemic levels. That was March through mid-June of this year, once they showed the revised numbers. And that's a huge improvement from the 36% that they had originally reported. And what they did is they included Jack, the Jack Casino, the Warehouse District, all sorts of those. They were doing it by zip codes, and downtown has more than one zip code. Yeah, it, look, that they kept saying it, and we, we were skeptical. I mean, I was skeptical. Yeah. And it turns out they were right. This was a bogus study, but it got reported over and over and over again. And it was, this thing was coming out, I don't think it was every month, but it was regular. And every time Cleveland was terrible, every single time. And the whole thing was bogus. These guys didn't know what they were doing. We should never report this study again. My bet is now Cincinnati's going to say, wait, wait. Well, you're not doing a whole bunch of cities. It wasn't just Cleveland that said you have us wrong. So they got a lot of input from a lot of cities. But you're right. Now that you know, Columbus looks bad. Maybe they didn't complain enough before. So there'll probably be a whole nother round of this. But this, the thing is, there is some, there's a, there's a value to studying this, right? And downtown Cleveland Incorporated, they realize that while more employees are coming back to downtown offices, they're never going to get people nine to five, five days a week. And he said downtown might see 75 to 80% of their workforce recovery. So, I mean, that's the max. They, I, yeah. We're nowhere near that. And they want to convert downtown from a central business district to a vibrant 18-hour neighborhood. They have got about 21,000 people who live downtown. That's grown in the last decade. So they want people to come for all sorts of reasons, not just the office. Yeah. The problem is, though, the study sounds like it was completely arbitrary. Instead of starting out by contacting cities and saying, "Okay, can you help us define your downtown core where employers Mm -hmm. are? They just made it up. And and we all reported it. We, I mean, it was over and over again. They got tons of attention. It's another lesson that we got to be really careful about these these studies because this had zero rigor to it. Everything that was reported on this is wrong. We should go back and put notes on all the previous stories saying, "Don't read this. It's wrong." Well, especially, but you think they're coming from Berkeley, right? This is a university. It's not just like Wallet Hub or whatever. We get literally dozens of studies a day trying to put us in perspective with other cities. And you're right. They use all sorts of random data and we don't report 95% of them because they're very squishy. This looks so legitimate that we were reporting it going what gives. And it turns out it was completely And we also wanted the data, right? We wanted to know how downtown was doing. We wanted to know how the offices were doing. It has huge implications for income taxes for city. And we didn't have a lot of information. So, I mean, I'm glad they tried, but you're right. They should have started out with the right well, and, demographics before. And Cleveland complained the very first time. So we're talking a couple of years at least of bad information. They should have fixed it on day one. The whole thing is a wake-up call for journalism 
you know, we got to pay closer attention. This was bogus. We reported it. We reported phony information that we thought was credible. Shame on these guys for doing such a lousy job. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Remember that house in Cleveland Heights that kept getting crashed into by speeding drivers not paying attention to the speed limit? The owners kept asking for a guardrail to replace the one that was removed and the city installed boulders instead. Layla, what is the latest possible solution here? The city is considering buying the house from owner John Gall, who has been begging for these guardrails or signs or flashing lights or something to make sure that drivers make that turn and don't come crashing into his house at the intersection of South Taylor and Fairmont Boulevard. The city, like you said, put these two giant boulders in the front yard to protect the house, but people kept crashing into those. (laughs) And that happened twice in one weekend, actually. So this poor guy has had his car destroyed by crazy drivers, his garage destroyed, and once someone drove straight into his house while he was sleeping in the couch in the next room. So city administrator Danny Williams told city council on Monday night that the city is looking to solve this problem for John Gall once and for all, even though he he made made it clear that this is not the city's fault. They just really want to do the right thing for him. And Williams said the guardrails are a non-starter as a solution because they pose an impalement risk for, for drivers traveling along that road should they hit one of these guardrails. So he said the city's looking at a number of options, one of which is negotiating a purchase price and turning that property into some public use. So they're seeking an appraisal for the property right now, although the owner didn't seem that interested (laughs) when a reporter contacted him. Yeah, and he didn't think he was going to get a good price either. And what, you're going to take a a single house lot and make it a park? I mean, come on. Right. Well, do you really want to put people in a park where cars are repeatedly coming out? I mean, you know, let's put a bunch of children there to get mowed down. This to me feels like surrender. We can't fix this problem, so let's just tear down the house and, and... but I, I, that does not seem like the right solution. This this should be fixable. We're we're a smart, intelligent species. How can we not figure out a way to stop drivers from speeding through that place so fast that they go careening into his yard? Well, and he actually had a simple solution, which because I'm at that intersection all the time, my bakery is right there. He pointed out the homeowner said that you know those lights on Taylor at, at the at Fairmount don't have arrows. It's just a green light. He said they should make those green lights arrows pointing left or right, saying you can't go straight here. Yeah. I don't know if that would help, but... Well, it's worth trying, right? I mean, they haven't done anything. The only thing they've done is put in a couple of big rocks. And come on, let's let's use our traffic engineering science to figure out what's the best way to do this. Can't be the first time something like this has been analyzed. Buying and tearing down the house seems like one of the the worst ideas. It's mm-hmm. just surrendering to bad drivers. Fix and the driving And he does not problem. seem interested in moving. He just wants this problem mm-hmm. solved. He's also not interested in, in making sure it's aesthetically pleasing. If it's his yard, he doesn't care if there's a guardrail there. Just do it. I don't. I don't understand what the problem is. Put up the <laughs> big signs. Put up. You know, whatever it takes. He seems willing to to forego the aesthetic of his property in, in favor of safety. So just do it. And I'm with him. I don't buy this impalement risk argument. I'm sure they make guardrails right. that are that are are not going to. Po- I mean, they have them all over the highway. I understand. There's lots written about how they are an impalement risk, but they have modified that technology in recent years. So I know, I know. It, it, this one is a head scratcher. But I will point out that the boulders did their job. 
They did. They, they did. They had to go back and reset them because they got moved. But yes, they did the job. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Cleveland Institute of Music is refusing to utter a word about this, not even to say no comment, but it has some explaining to do. What did 60% of the student body saying their petition calling for new management, Lisa? Yeah, 200 of the 350 students at the Cleveland Institute of Music signed a petition in October calling for the resignation of President and CEO Paul Hogel and Board Chair Dr. Susan Rothman. This alleges that they were not honest and transparent with the CIM community. They said that they were using threatening, oppressive, and patronizing language with faculty and staff, and they diminished the prestige and reputation of CIM because they got a lot of negative press in the national media. So uh, in classical music outlets reported on it. So this apparently stems from allegations of sexual harassment by principal conductor Carlos Kalmar. He was cleared of Title IX violations, but he was later put on leave of absence after protests by CIM orchestra members at the very first rehearsal of the school year. And they also say that they were not informed of July layoffs of 15% of the administrative tax staff, which included Title IX coordinator Vivian Scott. And they say that the resignation of faculty member Michael uh, Sachs, who cited an HR attorney email threatening litigation, was also part of their concern. For me, the clearest sign that the students are onto something and that they need change there is the way they're responding to this by sticking their heads in the sand and pretending it'll just go away. Whatever happened to transparency and engagement with the students? Why aren't they having conversations and talking and explaining? Instead, they're just shutting it down. So I do expect change will come because that never ends well. Closing the doors is a dumb idea. You're listening to Today in Ohio, and we got one more. This has to be the silliest idea to come down the retail pike in ages. Laura, what is Cinemark, the movie theater company, doing to expand sales of its styrofoam-like popcorn and overpriced Raisinets and Sour Patch Kids? This is insane. And if you want, I will sell you three bags of microwave popcorn for $15. That is more expensive than Boy Scouts popcorn, which if you've ever been asked to buy Boy Scouts popcorn. It's the first theater to try this. It's a partnership with delivery apps like Uber Eats and Dash, DoorDash and Grubhub, and they will deliver stuff to your door. So if you want a fountain beverage, you can pay $350 to $450 for movie theater, theater prices in your own home. I, I, I don't <laughs> understand why anyone would do this. If you really want a fountain beverage, go to McDonald's. If you want the movie boxes of of raisinets or goobers go to the dollar store i don't understand right. seriously it costs it costs like 70 bucks to go to the snack bar at the theater which and you're better <laughs> off spending that money on an oversized coat to shove all the candy in that you get from the dollar store that is why i have large totes right? i just i don't i don't i don't get this at all it's like when you go to the movie theater you get gouged and the popcorn is terrible why on earth would you destroy the home movie experience by bringing in ridiculously overpriced candy and bad popcorn? And yet they said they did a pilot project that was so successful. They're expanding this nationwide, not to Cleveland mm. just yet. Maybe they yes, sense we don't that have it here. Cleveland is smarter than that. And maybe the people here will say, what? I think Cleveland is cheaper than that. Can you imagine paying <laughs> six fifty for a hot dog delivered to your house? Like how many packs of hot dogs at Aldi could you buy for six fifty? Yeah. 
uh, th- th- this one really does boggle the mind. That's why we are talking about it. It's Today in Ohio. That's it for Thursday. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Friday, we'll be back wrapping up the week of news. But Laura will not be here because she's going away for a few days. And Rick Rowan, our statehouse editor, will be here in her stead. <laughs>